and he walked on stage to outrageous applause. Happy WOMAD, ladies and gentlemen, give it up. What a fantastic festival. You can see that Carl's so wrapped, he's going to do this whole gig lying down. Uh, my name's Paul Willis. I'm director at the Royal Institution of Australia, and we own and run Australia's Science Channel. Do tune in, ladies and gentlemen, if you want your regular daily dose of science, we're the place to go for it. And today, uh, as part of the Planet Talk stage, we are going to have a discussion on why should we trust scientists. And we've got a fantastic panel here to discuss that very topic. In pink, here we have from Harvard University, Naomi Oreskes. Let's hear it. Dressed in a stunning singularity, for those of you who want to follow the physics. Adelaide's own Tanya Munro. And I've made it a professional rule never to comment on Carl's dress sense. Ladies and gentlemen, the patron saint of geeks, Carl Krusenitsky. Now, this could be a really short discussion because I just need to ask each, each of you in turn, why should we trust scientists? Naomi, off the bat. Oh. <laughs> uh, well, my answer is actually a little complicated. My answer is we actually shouldn't trust scientists. Individual scientists can go astray. They can be corrupted. They can be confused. Our book, Merchants of Doubt, was all about a small group of scientists who became climate change deniers. So. Shameless plug, please buy the book at the book signing afterwards. Um, but I believe what we should trust is science as a process. Science is an activity, a process of discovery and learning that has a very strong track record, uh, where there are very good reasons why we, should, why we have reason to think that the process as a whole has tended to be reliable over time. So my answer is no, we shouldn't trust scientists as individuals who are human and fallible like any other humans, but we do have good reason for trusting the process of the development of scientific knowledge. So to put a, a, a personal spin on it here, Tanya, as a working scientist, should we trust you? Depends what I say, Paul. <laughs> <laughs> I think we need to start to help people understand the language and process of science in a way that they can judge for themselves when scientists are speaking from a deep expert knowledge or when they're speakly, simply speaking out of their hat about something they don't know. I, I think... One of the biggest challenges we have is a lot of the um, areas and whether it's vaccines, climate change, any of the other hot topics, when people speak with the language of science, whether they're scientists or not, there's an instant polarisation. Some people instantly trust that language without necessarily looking underneath and others instantly distrust because they don't understand it. So, you know, one of the points that I've often made is I think we'll have succeeded if we get more scientifically trained people in all walks of life, not just in the lab. So people can get much better at picking apart what really is science and what just sounds like science. So, Carl, taking... <laughs> you get the idea. Well done, folks. Um, 
Carl, taking what's already been said, uh, when should you or shouldn't you trust the science? Um, when should you or shouldn't? I was going to give a completely different answer to... I already had my comment ready. Can I get my comment out of the way? I, go, I, I okay. bold you a googly. No, okay. No, I was looking at my own book what I said. So here it comes. Um, <laughs> 1% of the general population, including scientists, and you out there, are psychopaths. And therefore not to be trusted. Let me quote from my we book. We should have at least two psychopaths in the audience. Could you self-identify, please? Yeah. Okay. So the characteristics are virtually no con uh, conscience, no impulse control, no guilt, empathy, remorse or emotions. On the other hand, you two are fearless, both mentally and physical, focused really well, mentally strong, superficially charming, very skilled, very persuasive at convincing others, very egocentric, very dishonest. 2% of us, 1% uh, of men, 2% of women, as well as being callous and ruthless and immune to anxiety and in, very happy to indulge in risk-taking and you tend to have a grandiose sense of self-worth. So, no, you should not trust scientists because 1% to 2% of them are psychopaths. But, yes, you should trust scientists because science is self correcting. So you may well go out there and say, hey, everybody, the sky is yellow with pink polka dots and everybody go along with you until somebody says, I've just done a spectrographic analysis, it's blue, and then suddenly it doesn't matter how persuasive you are, the science has proven you wrong. Uh, <laughs> Naomi, in your book, uh, as, as you alluded to uh, a moment ago, uh, you came across some individual cases where, yeah, you, you cannot trust a scientist. But it comes back to the question then of, well, what about the science? When, what are the hallmarks that let you trust the science? Or what are the hallmarks that say, beware, don't trust this? Well, the key, thing, the key thing is really what Tanya just alluded to a moment ago. It's really about expertise. Science is a very specialized activity. And scientists spend tremendous amounts of time being educated and trained in a particular area. And in that, that area, by and large, 98% of them, the ones who aren't psychopaths, know a tremendous amount about what they study and have worked incredibly hard to earn that knowledge. It's very hard to earn knowledge. So by and large, for the most part, again, setting aside the 2% psychopaths, you can generally, I think, trust scientists when they're speaking from their knowledge base in their area of expertise. One of the things we showed in our work was that these climate change deniers who became very prominent and who I now understand they clearly were psychopaths. I used to think they were malevolent narcissists, but now I realize I was wrong, so I'm self-correcting. Um, <laughs> um, they were presenting themselves as experts in all kinds of different areas, uh, in oncology and biomedicine and atmospheric chemistry, atmospheric phys physics. Um, and uh, the uh, biology of endocrine disrupting chemicals like DDT. And actually, they were nuclear physicists and rocket scientists. And so for us, that was the first clue that something was fishy in this story. How is it possible that a man who's trained as a nuclear physicist could also be an expert in oncology and biomedicine and atmospheric chemistry? That just wasn't plausible. And then when we started digging in, well, then we discovered a whole lot of other signs as well. But it was that key thing about speaking outside the boundaries of expertise and training and across a very, very wide range of issues um, in which, in most cases, they actually had no training and had never published any articles at all. 
And so one thing I always say to journalists is, sometimes journalists say to me quite aggressively, well, how am I supposed to know, you know what they're an expert in? And I say, well, you could start by asking two simple questions. Number one, what did you get your PhD in? And number two, what have you published in peer-reviewed journals on this subject? Uh, and, and to follow up on that. Um, and are you a psychopath? Yep. Yeah, uh, <laughs> I am not an expert in anything. I'm a generalist. And so I just follow exactly as Naomi says, the average opinion of the experts in that field. And so if a geologist says that mountain is igneous or metamorphic, sure. If a metallurgist says, to make stainless steel, you've got to add 8% and 18 of nickel and chrome and a bit of carbon, sure. And if a paediatric oncologist says, your kid has got chronic myeloid leukaemia, we used to use cyclophosphamide, now we use 5-polythiouracil or something, I'll say sure. So exactly what you said, you follow the average opinion of the experts in that field, which can change. We were wrong, for example, with um, ulcers. We used to think that ulcers were due to hurry, worry and curry, and that then got thrown away with the helicobacter. So science is self-correcting. If you take that definition, though, about talking outside of your field, I'm thinking back here to a, an example on Q&A. Barnaby Joyce. Oh, the fu the, 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 the I, I can't believe I just said that on, name on... on, on, the, on the, the man with the splendidly Victorian name who is an accountant who pretends he's a farmer. Uh, that one, yes, yeah. indeed. Uh, he was on, but also uh, so was Tim Flannery. And when it came to climate change, Flannery was shut down by Joyce, but he simply turned around and said, so what did you get your PhD in? And it, it, it was paleontology. We studied together. Uh, and he said, well, what are you doing talking about climate change? If I want to know about paleontology, I'll come to you. But surely someone like Tim Flannery, who's done, uh, may not have published peer-reviewed work in climate change, but has done a number of uh, detailed studies of the literature of climate change, should, they're talking outside their space, but shouldn't they be believed? I think it all comes down to the person speaking, really laying a narrative out of how they've reached their conclusion, doing it on the basis of science that's been peer-reviewed and that is up there and subject to scrutiny. I mean, we're only as good as the data we have, and if anyone can question it and prove it wrong, we always have to rethink our theories. So I, I actually think it would be a catastrophe if we got to a point where scientists really could only speak within what they're expertly trained at without being able to create the bridges through pulling on the work of others. But we always have to question it. We can't just take it as gospel. But then following on from that, Tim Flannery is quite clear when he says, I'm just going along with what the average opinion of the consensus of climate change is. I'm just a voice. I'm not an expert, I'm a voice. Yeah, so I mean, I was just with Tim in Sydney and Melbourne, and to some extent, Tim and I are similar. I mean, I'm not trained as a climate scientist, although I am trained as an earth scientist, but when I published my 2004 article on the scientific consensus on climate change, I might have made it quite clear that I was doing this work as a historian of science, as someone who studies the development of scientific knowledge. And I posed the question, well, what do climate scientists have to say about this question? And we can answer that question. We can read what they've published. We can look at the literature. And, and as a historian of science, I can say, this is what the climate science community is telling us about the data, about the evidence, and it's the best available knowledge that we have at this state in history. So if we have to make a choice, if we have to make a decision, 
we're, the odds are very great that we're going to be better off listening to the evidence of climate scientists you know, than listening to a few superannuated physicists who turn out to be uh, psychopaths. So when we're evaluating what a scientist is saying to us, we can put our trust in if they give the right context for the information that they're giving so that we know if that what they're saying is represents the, the bulk of the science or if it's just a fringe view. And we need to know how their expertise relates to that knowledge. We need to know if they're a deep expert in some aspects relating to what they're talking about or whether they, as Naomi, Naomi was just saying, are synthesising a consensus of knowledge at a point in time. I personally think a lot of it comes down to almost a human need for absolutism, clarity and lack of ambiguity. And so quite often I think, you know, we need to make decisions in our everyday life and, you know, stomach ulcers is the great example. You know, we don't know what's going to be around the corner and what's going to seem obvious tomorrow that's not today. And I think that's where the crux of the matter often becomes. And uh, I'll get my emphasis here from uh, Michael Faraday who said, I hold my theories on the tips of my fingers so that the merest breath of fact will throw them away. So with the Big Bang, there's three very strong bits of evidence. Have to go along with the Big Bang because that's what all the cosmologists go along with. If something new comes up, out it goes, we go with the new one. Science changes as it goes along. But now, you encouraged us to jump in, so yeah, I will. Go, so I just do want to say one thing, though, about... Um, what Tanya just said, except now I just forgot. Oh, what did you just say a minute ago? Black and white and decision-making. Oh, the black and white and the decision-making. So um, often scientists that I work with say things like that. So, you know, we want certainty. It's this sort of human impulse. But actually, the psychological and educational studies show us that scientists want certainty. The kinds of students who are attracted to science, who want to go into science, are people who like questions that have definite answers. But actually, the sort of people who go into the arts and humanities are people who like interesting, complicated things that don't necessarily have definite answers. So I think sometimes the scientific community um, assumes that everyone else wants what they want. Scientists want definite answers, and so scientists work incredibly hard to get definite answers. And we see this in the climate science community, and particularly the work of the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change that has gone to incredible lengths to quantify the uncertainties related to climate change. But the reality is that most of us make decisions all the time in a situation of uncertainty. We get married, we have children, you know, we take jobs, and we don't know how our marriages will work out. We don't know how our children will grow up. We don't know if the job will turn out to be good or not. But we go with it because we know life is filled with uncertainties. So the idea that we somehow need absolute knowledge or absolute certainty to be able to make a decision about vaccinations or climate change I think that that's a, a not the right way to think about it. And the right way to think about it is much more along the lines of, we have to make decisions. We go with the best evidence we have. And in the case of climate change, we have huge amounts of data going back 50 years now from satellites and ice cores and marine sediments, and actually even now the things we can see taking place um, in front of our eyes. I lived here in Adelaide 30 years ago. We never had a day as humid and hot as it was the day I arrived here a couple of days ago. So the climate is changing and we see it and scientists give us a bigger framework for putting what we see into context. Just quickly and then we'll move on. Paul, why are you covering up with this pathetic thing called climate change when we know the real issue are the Illuminati, our reptile masters, the aliens, the fact that we never went to the moon and chemtrails? Right, yep. Touche. Yeah. Uh, thank you very much for that contribution there, uh, uh, Carl. Um, because, well, it actually goes in the direction that I want to start talking about, and that is bias. 
not only by the scientists, so if, uh, is there a, uh, a, an overlord to their science, there's a bias there, but also bias in the general population as to they will accept, they will trust the scientists, they will trust the science that appeals to them. So let's take the first bias, bias within science. Talk to me about the kinds of influences that we should be on the lookout for. Tanya. And the bottom drawer effect. Well, I mean, there's the obvious ones. And the first is who's funding the research? That's the often discussed question. But I'd actually go right to the bottom to start with and say that science and good science is all about asking the right questions. And so for bias, first, I'd interrogate the question. Why is the scientist asking the question they are? And I'd argue that the majority of bias that I've observed in science is actually not malevolent. It's often come from the limitations of individual people trained deeply in a very narrow area, not knowing how best to form the question because most of the questions that are actually relevant or interesting in the world actually can't be tackled by any one discipline alone and require you to take a much more holistic approach. But this goes to your point uh, about raising conspiracy theories. There's a natural set of biases there which, in conducting the science, are going to come into play. Sure. So take the example of Coca-Cola funding research into exercise physiology in the role of obesity. Now, you can look at the food in, the calories, and how foods have been made hyperpalatable, etc., etc., and you can look at what comes out, in other words, how many calories you burn. And people vary enormously on both sides, and there's bacteria in your gut and all that sort of stuff. So definitely, the role of exercise straight away helps you burn up calories. And by doing exercise, you put on more muscle so that you have a higher metabolic rate. But you cannot outrun a muffin in less than an hour. At least. <laughs> and if it's in the state and the muffin's extra large, then it's even worse. <laughs> Two hours. That's certainly a race I'd like to see, me and a muffin on the start line. Um, we could do that next year at WOMAD, the great muffin <laughs> burn-off race. <laughs> OK, so let's go to the, the, the bias in the eyes of the beholder, in that most people uh, will accept the science that already appeals to them, and they'll pick and choose, they'll cherry-pick. So, for instance, you can find someone who uh, will happily accept the science of climate change but might reject the science of vaccination. Uh, you might find someone who's quite happy with the science around uh, environmental problems uh, and overpopulation but uh, mention uh, uh, genetically modified uh, organisms and the science behind that and they're not so ready to accept that. So. What of the biases of the beholder, of the people that we're trying to sell the science to? Well, so we have a term for that. It's called implicatory denial. You deny or reject scientific evidence where you don't like its implications. So maybe you're a smoker and you like smoking, you don't want to quit, so you tend to reject or dismiss scientific evidence that says smoking is dangerous. And one of the things we learned in our research was that Coca-Cola, the tobacco industry, the fossil fuel industry, they're very, very savvy about implicatory denial, and they appeal to it. So in the case of the tobacco industry, knowing that smokers don't want to quit, 
they would say, well, you know, it's not really proven, we don't really know, so why give up, a, why give up a something that you enjoy that's pleasurable if you don't know for sure that it's dangerous anyway? And we have a tremendous documentary record now that shows how the tobacco industry used doubt to play on people's implicatory denial and keep them smoking. Now add the fact that nicotine is addictive, so now even if a person wants to smoke to quit, they can't, then you have a, really a recipe for keeping people smoking even though you know it's killing them. Uh, look, I'd throw two things in. If you have a bias that you'd really like to believe because it backs up something you enjoy, such as that example there, in the current age where you can just do a Google search, you'll find someone who has that view and the more times you read it with the more different voices, the more embedded that bias will be. But the other thing I think is really interesting is the fact that we use the same word in the English language for research for what you do when you're trying to go out and just poll you know, information that's out there, when you do a Google search, as for the process that scientists go through in order to prove or disprove hypotheses. And I think that's actually quite problematic because they're not the same thing at all. So, so, so what you mean, word if would you, spend, you like? Sorry, go sorry. So what would, would you like us to use for scientific research? Because we can't change what people call what they do on the internet, but we could come up with a, we could come up with a WOMAD neologian. Maybe <laughs> we can have a crowdsourced definition of what the act of doing science is that separates it out from a biased confirming Google search. Challenge for the audience. <laughs> yeah, we will be taking any of those suggestions in the question period, which is the second half uh, uh, of the presentation today, but that's a good idea. Why, why not inject something into the lexicon? Carl, did you have anything to add around the, um, the, the biases in the eye of the beholder? Um, straight away, if you are clear and articulate, you come across as far more believable. If you have a lower voice, Rather than a higher voice, you are far more believable. If you are a tall person, once again, if you can throw in random numbers such as 72% of people believe what I'm saying and say it slowly and confidently, people will believe you. So there's a combination of the data plus the stagemanship. So I'm now standing up with high heels and I'm going to talk in a very deep voice. <laughs> Yes, but uh, speaking from a voice of authority. But that's going to change, too, as we have more women scientists and more women chancellors. <laughs> Our image of cultural authority will change, too. OK, I want to run you through an example of uh, a discussion in science where there are two equally valid but opposing uh, opinions or, or, or bodies of literature and see what, you're, what you make of it and, and how you would choose to, to deal with that state. Equal, equal yes. scientific... Yes. Okay, go on. Yeah, okay. I want to talk about boobs. What? <laughs> I'm a bloke. And I, in particularly, I want to talk about sexualisation of breasts and man's, man's I fascination with them. I thought we were no, in Australia. Boobs. We were going to talk about boobs. <laughs> because there's... I've been doing some research on this. Don't ask why. But there's two piles of literature. They're both equally valid, as far as I can see. One uh, uh, school seems to mostly be male evolutionary biologists who come up with a number of reasons why there is an evolutionary significance to sexualization of breasts and male fascination with them. They've identified neurotransmitters that are involved, and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. The second pile, mostly by female social scientists, says if you look at cultures around the world, you can find cultures where breasts are not sexualized 
and men are not fascinated with them. So therefore, it must be a meme. It's not gene uh, genetic, it's not a gene, it's a, it's a thought, uh, and therefore something that's more amenable to change. Now, they can't both be right, or can they? How would you approach those two different schools of thought? Because also, notice there is an implicit bias in both camps. Well, the first comment I'd make is I think both camps have come up with suboptimal outcomes because they haven't had the diversity in the people asking the question. <laughs> exactly. No, I mean, this is a really, really important point. I agree 100%. I mean, one of the things we've learned from the history of science is that if we look at cases where in hindsight we would say, oh, wow, the scientific community really blew it there, often what we see are very narrow communities that are not diverse, either culturally, racially, economically, or gender-based. And when you have a narrow group of people who are not viewing something from diverse perspectives, it's very easy for that group to reinforce their own cultural predilections and biases. And this is the most important intellectual and epistemic argument in favor of diversity in our universities. It's not just because it's the right thing to do, although in my opinion, the fact that it's the right thing to do ought to be enough. Actually, I always find it weird that like, oh no, that's not enough reason. We don't want to just do the right thing because it's the right thing. But okay, so for those people for whom that's not enough, and this applies in businesses too. There are lots and lots of studies that show now that in the private sector, if you have a diverse team, you're less likely to make a really egregious error in the design of your product than if you have a diverse team. And that includes gender, race, economic age, even like diverse teams, young people view things differently than older people. So it's a really, really important intellectual and economic as well as moral argument for why diversity is so important in our communities. And would that argument apply to both camps? It applies equally yeah. to both camps in my view. I think where they went wrong is the way they framed the question, which then guided where they got to the answer. I suspect both answers are wrong. Because what <laughs> I found really interesting is I've yet to come across a good rebuttal of the other camp's thought. So well, it sounds like you're just about to create your interdisciplinary team, Paul. Well, yeah. and volunteering. I, I certainly <laughs> want to be in the control group on that particular experiment. But, but this is also an example of where, why the category of scientific consensus is important. So many times, if you look at a scientific debate, you can see that actually there are these arguments. And it's very common that when there's a debate in the scientific community, that if it breaks down in exactly these same kinds of ways. And it doesn't have to be about breasts. Um, it could be about black holes or whether or not continents move. I mean, my own first book is about the debate over continental drift theory in the 1920s. And one of the things we see in that debate is that certain scientists who were looking at it from a certain perspective thought, yeah, there actually is evidence that these continents used to be connected and now they've broken up. So paleontologists who were looking at fossils a lot of them were convinced that there had to be some kind of theory to explain this, but then uh, geophysicists who were looking at it from a mechanistic standpoint and couldn't figure out how you could explain the mechanisms, they said, well, we can't do it. So it's really, really important in any scientific debate to do exactly what you did, to look at all of the different people who are examining the question and say, well, well how do these different people view it? And one of the reasons I became convinced about the importance of climate as an issue was because I actually did that myself about 15 years ago. And what I found was it didn't matter what the people's perspective was, whether they were drilling ice cores in Antarctica or taking satellite measurements of the troposphere or looking at instrumental temperature records on the surface of the Earth, they all were telling us, yes, the climate's changing. And this is what is sometimes referred to as consilience of evidence. You have different lines of evidence coming from different groups of people, different parts of the world. 
and different scientific approaches. And when they all tell you that no matter how you look at this question, you still get the same answer, that's a very, very powerful intellectual argument. Can you, can you define the word, I haven't heard this before, consilience, C-O-N-S-I-L-I-N-C-E? What does it mean? Yeah, so it basically means consistency or coming together. So this uh, term was first popularized in the 19th century by William Hewell, uh, who's also the man who coined the term scientist. Yes, we didn't have scientists before 1853. <laughs> uh, we had natural historians and natural philosophers and mathematicians and savants, but the term scientist comes from William Hewell, and he argued that the method of science was exactly what I just said, to look at a question from many different angles, as many as possible, and when all the evidence comes together in a consistent way, he says that's a consilience, so a kind of consistency, and that's when you can feel confident that your answer is likely to be correct. So what's the difference between consilience and consensus? Okay, so consilience refers to the evidence, so it's basically an epistemic term, that the lines of evidence are consistent. Right. So in, in some sense, it's, it's similar to what you would do in a court of law. You say all of the evidence points to Dr. Carl as being a psychopath. Uh, consensus is an expression of the views of the people. So if the scientists agree that the evidence is consistent, then the scientists have a consensus about the consilience of evidence. Wow. There's, there's also... <laughs> that, that's, that's what we do at Harvard. Yeah, I, I'm really Come big on consilience. Uh, I, I think it's a concept that we don't uh, have enough focus on. Uh, and one of the corollaries that Hewell originally put up when he uh, discussed consilience is that if you've got 90% or 99% of your re independent research pointing to one answer and then another line of research points in a completely uh, different direction, the chances are the error is in the methodology of the people that are outside the consilience. That's why it's important to explain the context, the research context of the case that you want to fight. So, um, you know, uh, to go to a case with um, Marianne de Macy on Catalyst, uh, you know, she's got into hot water because she's presented uh, uh, arguments outside of the consilience, the, 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 the maverick view that might have some support in themselves, but she didn't present the context within which that maverick view was being held. Sorry, I'm not familiar with that case. Can you explain it? Yeah, I guess if I don't know what it is, then there's, probably... There's, 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 I, I used to work on a program called Catalyst on ABC TV, and um, one of the other reporters, Marianne de Macy, has uh, fallen into hot water a couple of times in recent years because she did a, a, one report was on... Uh, the evidence the, or the, the, the idea that statins don't work oh. um, and uh, the uh, recent one was on was on Wi-Fi that there is a, we should all be worried about getting cancer from Wi-Fi and, and just to reassure the audience the amount of evidence that non-ionizing radiation can cause cancer is indistinguishable from zero so basically mobile phones uh, Wi-Fi, the amount of evidence for it that stands up is zero. Now, if I can just take a, 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 an outside view on what we've just been talking about, you know, these are ways that we can approach a, a body of scientific information and make an assessment as to whether or not we should trust it and, 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 and where to go with it. That's an awful lot of work 
to it, it get someone yeah. else, to, you know, yeah. who, who who doesn't work in science. They only have access to the internet uh, at night when the kids have gone to bed. It's like we're, we're asking a lot of the public. It, it to was a lot of work, and so I watched that show, and then that reporter got on a expert in inverted commas from America, who said, and it took me five hours to get the answer. And they said that there was the case of the atom bombs being exploded at Hiroshima and Nagasaki. Yeah, that was correct. And that as a result, there was radiation released. Correct. And as a result, there were cancers, uh, brain cancers, especially afterward. Yes. And that in general, cancers have a long lead time. Yes. And that no brain cancers happened for 40 years. Wrong. Within 13 years. This person who went on the ABC and said there were no cancers of the brain appearing for 40 years, the data says that there were people dying of brain cancer, not just getting it within 13 years. It took me five hours to find that. How does the average person do that? Exactly. I, I just, exactly. Well, it, well, exactly. Yeah. Well, uh, that's where I come back to the role of science training for people in all walks of life. Because I don't think any of us can assume that we're going to live by making every single decision on an evidence basis ourselves, no matter how savvy we are at reading scientific literature. I, I fundamentally feel we need a... You know, just like in the discussions that you see a lot in the papers that until you have three women at a boardroom table, you don't change culture, until we have, you know, 30 50% plus of people that are in decision-making roles having some personal acquaintance with scientific methods and decision-making... Um, I think people are going to feel that, you know, it's very hard to know what to trust. I guess, you know, one example I'd say is in Australia, the, the sheer amount of medical treatments that are paid for that have no scientific basis, basis I find quite terrifying is one example. And it's something that I hope would be different if we had people who had that way of thinking built into them, making decisions. But it's not fun if we agree about everything. So, <laughs> um, so I totally believe in science education. I completely agree that it would be great if more people understood science, especially because I think you get such a deeper appreciation out of the natural world when you understand things about it. And I know that I notice more birds after I've taken a course on ornithology. So I'm totally in favor of science education. But I think we have evidence that shows that as a solution to this problem, it doesn't actually work. Now, admittedly, my evidence is from the United States, so that could be an anomalous. Uh, you know, we know there are certain problems in the United States that are particular to that country. But um, in the United States, we have invested huge amounts of resources in the last 30 years on what we call STEM education, science, technology, engineering, and medicine. And during that time, we have actually seen a decrease in public acceptance of what we would call the established scientific knowledge. And so that tells us that, at minimum, education alone is not enough. And I would say, based on my own research, what I would conclude from that is that the period when we've increased our efforts in science education has also coincided in a period where there has been a massive increase in funding of disinformation by companies like you know, R.J. Reynolds, Philip Morris Tobacco, ExxonMobil, um, Peabody Coal, and you know, we documented this in our research. So if you do science education, but at the same time, you're up against organized, well-funded, sophisticated disinformation that involves advertising campaigns, public relations, pressure on the media, because the media is a big point of this, your educational efforts may well be in vain. So I think you actually, yeah, they'll be overwhelmed, exactly. So you have to educate people also about the sources of disinformation. And that's hard to do because then you get accused of being a conspiracy theorist. So, it's, but it's not about a conspiracy. It's about the facts of the modern world we live in, in which the corporate sector is very savvy 
Um, and I think the media play a big role in this too, because as Dr. Carl just said, the media often will put on television a climate scientist and some snake oil salesman who you know, is being paid by industry. So we have to ask harder questions about who are these people and who's funding them, and why is the media inviting a snake oil salesman to be on television? Don't point to me. Yeah, oh, sorry. Okay, why is the ABC, you know? Uh, the, and I've experienced this myself, and it's a very difficult issue, but I think we have to be upfront about it, and we have to challenge the media and say, you guys are doing damage because you're giving the public the impression that there's a big scientific debate, whether it's climate change or vaccines or whatever it is, when in reality, that's actually not what's going on. So it comes back Just, to the earlier yep. point we were talking about, about really explaining the context by which anyone is able to enter a debate. Yeah. Exactly. yeah. 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 Um, following on from what you were saying there about both context and the media, 70% of millennials do Say not... Say in a deeper voice, Carl. 70% of millennials <laughs> do not get news from radio... TV or newspaper, well, that's the good news. but from the feed down the side of Facebook, Snapchat. And my daughter came to me, uh, she's 17 years old, and said, hey, what's this about the Antarctic? So I went and looked up the original paper, and the paper said, well, the Antarctic is huge. In winter, it expands to four times the size of Australia, 20 million square kilometres, and it shrinks and expands. But looking at the land, the land ice has been in dropping, it's been melting, and the land ice is dropping at an increasing rate. And now it's gone up to 200 billion tonnes a year, but there's this tiny area in the Antarctic about, oh, you know, one-tenth of the size of Tasmania where there's some mountains and there's some weird wind currents, and the ice there is increasing. The news headline in both a Murdoch newspaper and... No, no, not the Murdoch newspaper, on the side of the BuzzFeed was Antarctic ice increasing, comma, global cooling, comma, scientists confused. <laughs> yeah. Um, I like the way you just changed I, I, the subject. I, I certainly am. Uh, <laughs> uh, I, I, I just want to touch on the, the, the question of science education uh, when we got there. Are we teaching the wrong things in science in that most science courses, uh, whether they be in school or, or public education programs or whatever, tend to be uh, facts and figures and, and, and wow gee wizardry Whereas I think we would have a greater mileage if we taught people how we know stuff in science, the methodologies and the philosophies of science, rather than the facts and figures. Look, I couldn't agree more. And I think um, in one of the biggest things we know puts kids off science. Because um, most kids I've met at primary school age love it, are full of the how, why, what questions. Um, but then they get to high school and we teach them how to follow very dry procedural, you know, methods that, you know, turn off all but the most persistent kid. Um, if we actually taught them what it's like doing science, I mean, it's actually, you know, the cut and the thrust and the excitement, it could be could be high drama. Uh, you know, you get up and you present a new idea at a conference and it's shot down by the experts who think they know what it is and sometimes you find out you are wrong. But it's all, it's all the um, how science is done, how you put the question, how you tear it down if the data stacks up, doesn't stack up and how it all builds on itself. Um, I don't think kids have a glimpse of that at school. Yeah, and that's really why I became a historian of science. So when I studied science, I mean, I liked it and I found it interesting, but no one ever really explained 
how we came to know the things that were in the textbooks. And I became interested in that question. And so that's really what history of science is all about. It's about trying to understand that process of the development of scientific knowledge. And it's definitely very messy. And uh, you know, sometimes it upsets scientists to find out that it is as messy it is, as it is. But we also find that lots of non-scientists really enjoy reading history of science because it's the human face of scientific research. I, th I think something else that we often miss uh, in talking about science is that it's done by human beings and they are fallible and they have all of the weaknesses and biases and foibles of anybody else. Carl, you've met plenty of scientists in your time. Have you ever met the truly objective, rational, 100% down-the-line scientist? Is there such a creature? Uh, only in reading stuff by Richard Feynman. Uh, and everybody else is uh, human and makes mistakes and goes down blind pathways. And you keep on hearing about the supervisors ripping off ideas from their students. And so you get this um, false... Uh, Bad, bad treatment, not false, bad treatment of the junior scientists by the senior scientists. And yes, 1% of people are psychopaths. You can expect that. But I, I still think that science is a means to salvation via the fact that it's self-correcting. But the education thing, literally the word education means E meaning out, duco to lead. And so I read an autobiography of a guy who turned out to be ending up producing the Rolling Stones at one stage and he was at high school, uh, first day of high school, and his English teacher said, I don't know you, you don't know me, I want you all to write an essay on what you did in the holidays, except you pointing at this kid, because you'd notice she was a musician and he was doing 4-3 and 5-7 timing with his fingers, he was just bored, he said, I want you to write an essay for me on music, and he didn't realise it, but he loved music, and she drew out of him what was good. Okay, second point, in the Scandinavian countries, they regard education not as an intolerable burden but rather as a worthy investment in the future and the kids do not get homework and the teachers have to have a master's degree in education which I don't have and a master's degree in their field and so you end up with a bit of balance so I think the kids should come out with a mental toolbox which has both data and uh, processes think of Facebook it has data it has the application. One without the other doesn't work. So the data that they should have is this is how the heart beats and if you've got a lower voice, you'll be more trustworthy. And uh, by the way, prime numbers are such and such. And then you should know how to process it. So if somebody comes to you and says, hey, this product at so many grams per $100 is better than that product, you can say, you got the mathematics wrong. Or if somebody says you put a little red band, a rubber band on your wallet, on your wrist, and it'll make you have better balance, you know they're wrong. So you should have enough of a... <laughs> data, these mental toolboxes, both data and applications, to deal with the world and then you go on. And finally, the, most of our education system is set up for getting people into university and if you don't get into university, obviously you're a failure, which is a terrible situation in Scandinavia. You're going to go into the trades or the universities and you can jump across and both are respected. If you do not have plumbers, you do not have a civilization. I think we've got a long way to go. We've got a lot to learn from the nations that gave us IKEA and ABBA. Ladies and gentlemen, it's time now for questions from the audience. If you have a question, please raise your hand. We will get a microphone to you so that everybody in the audience can hear you. And our first question is down the front here. Would you mind standing up, sir? Yeah. Thank you. Hello. Thanks for coming along. My question's about the Big Bang Theory, the TV show. Now, I love it, but is there a risk at the perception that scientists are weedy, scaredy cats, weak and 
the, all just all over the place, or even have a bad mental condition in one of them. Um, can we trust scientists if they're all like that? What, no, they're only physicists. <laughs> Tanya. <laughs> Tanya is a physicist. I am a physicist. <laughs> Sadly, yes. Um, there are quite a few, but the thing I'd say is probably one of the most powerful things we can do is get the greatest diversity of role models out there for kids to see. You know, the number of times I've got out and spoken to schools and had kids come up to me and say, I didn't think a scientist would, could be like you. And so by, you know, by abstraction, they didn't think they could be because they couldn't see someone like them doing science. Um, I think shows like that are fantastic for getting people aware and excited and having a bit of fun about science, but we need more of them and they need to encompass a greater variety of people doing it and doing it well. And, and furthermore, can, there are people who are not scientists who are nerdy, awkward and have mental conditions. Yeah. <laughs> And you can trust Sheldon about the Big Bang Theory, but I wouldn't ask him for dating advice. <laughs> I remember on, on Friends, wasn't, there was a vertebrate paleontologist. Uh, that and, that uh, drove me crazy. Yeah, yeah. That, 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 no, no, no. Down here, sir. Yeah, hi, thanks. Um, I wondered if the panelists could talk a bit about sugar and fat. Um, I saw a program once. Uh, it said that in the 70s, sugar was the culprit that was making people fat. And then apparently sometime uh, during the Reagan administration was national policy that we needed to have low-fat foods and sugar was fine. And then we found out that they were putting sugar in the fat-free food and then we found out sugar is the problem. And I'm just wondering, and then we found out that the, the, the anti-sugar uh, research was coming from the people who uh, grow cattle. So what, what's going on? I mean, I, I began to wonder if we couldn't get food science right with all this bias in, in, in like, 40 years, I was thinking, well, what about climate change? I didn't want to think like that, but maybe think about it. Well, this is exactly the problem, and the reality is that's how they want you to think about it, which is a really depressing thought. So I think that food right now is the next climate change. It's the next smoking. I mean, we're seeing, we've seen in the last 30 years tremendous amounts of money flooding universities in the United States to finance nutritional science. And there's no question there's been a huge distortion and bias introduced into food science. And so this tells us two things, and it gets back to what we said. It's difficult. It is really hard for an ordinary person to know what to think. So we have to ask questions about who's funding the science. And we have to ask for disclosure that all scientific research should disclose who's funding the work. And it means we have to push back at our universities if they press us too hard on this issue of industry partnerships, which are not necessarily bad, but can be bad. We have to be really clear about making sure that if we partner with industry, that all of the funding sources are disclosed and that their mechanisms are put in place. And there are things we can do that we know can work um, to prevent this sort of distortion of the science. And then we have to ask hard questions about who's funding the work. And that's something that, you know, again, if you go on the internet, one of the things you can do is to, is to ask, well, wait, what is this website? Is this a website from the Royal Society or the National Academy of Sciences? Or is this a website that's funded by the National Cattlemen's Association? And, you know, sometimes it takes a little digging to find that out, but it doesn't take that much digging. Usually, you know, one or two levels down, uh, you can find it, but it can be hard. There's something on the web now called the Genetic Literacy Project, which is a pro-GMO website. And without taking a position on GMOs, I just want to say that this particular website presents itself as a scientific website, but is actually wholly funded by Monsanto. 
And that's an example of the kind of challenge that we face as citizens digging through this sort of thing. Um, with those issues you mentioned, the sugar, the fat, firstly, as a medical student, I had eight hours of training in dietetics. And at the end of that eight hours, I knew that I knew virtually zero, especially compared to the people who do four years. So if you look at what the dietitians say, and by the way, dietitian is a protected word, but you can call yourself a nutritionist and do a course on the web for two hours and pay $25 and get a nice certificate. Anybody can call themselves a nutritionist. The dietitians have not been fooled. With regard to the sugar one, you've got a lawyer who was a big fat guy and he was drinking lots of fruit juices, empty calories, and he realised that if he didn't drink uh, the fruit juices, he'd lose weight. Oh my God, I write a book on it. And then you have the similar situation with other people with the various fads, none of whom are trained dietitians. Following on specifically to one example that you've all heard of, the paleo diet, over the years, the dietitians of the world have a debate, they have a survey of which is the worst diet in the world, and for the last 10 years, uh, overall, the, out of the 30 diets that they look at, the paleo diet comes either bottom or equal bottom or in, always in the bottom three. Last year, it came equal last with the Ducan diet. I'm not sure if you're familiar with it, but the Ducan diet says that the fundamental food group you, you should stick with is Diet Coke. I'm not kidding. And then everything follows on from that. So with the paleo diet, it comes bottom. And then what you have is some guy with an impressive upper body and good musculature giving advice on paediatric nutrition and actually giving advice that could kill babies. And the book was withdrawn. So my advice in that, and you being confused, is try and find what the dietitians say and you'll say that they don't go with any of this. There's a wonderful book by Michael Plan, P-O-L-L-A-N, called... Uh, um, uh, the something. Omnivore's Dilemma. No, there was another one. Uh, something like that. What was they the other one? It might have had a different title in Australia. Yeah, they do couple. that sometimes. Well, what's that? In defense of food. And I'll give it to you in seven words. Eat food, mostly plants, not too much. By food, he means stuff that your parents and grandparents would recognize, not stuff that's been super processed. Now, if you get some tomatoes and you add some garlic and chop them up and onions and all that sort of stuff, you're processing it, but you're not adding huge amounts of salt and fat. So st stuff that you do not need a small tactical nuclear device to open, right? Regular food. <laughs> Eat food. Mostly plants. You can go vegetarian. It's hard. My wife and I, our daughter went vegetarian. We got it wrong and she went iron deficient. It's hard, but you can do it. And, you can, and there are definite health benefits to a well-constructed vegetarian diet. And I'm basically vegetarian, except when my daughter's there, then I go for the meat. Eat food, mostly plants, <laughs> not too much. There's a 20-minute delay between your, when your tummy is full and your brain says so. And that's because of our 600,000-year history of not having access to all the food we want. So even if you've already eaten and you're full, your mind says, it might not be there tomorrow, you eat it now. So eat food, mostly plants, not too much, in defense of food. I saved you 20 hours of reading with that. Yeah. And <laughs> I've always wondered how you can trust the paleo diet when the original target audience had a life expectancy of 25. <laughs> uh, we have a question down the back here. Okay, thanks, thanks for a really great session. Um, I've had a bit of experience getting up at anti-vaccination rallies in places like Mullumbimby over the years and learnt... You are a brave man, sir. <laughs> I've learnt quite a, a lot of painful lessons. And one is that there are really two parallel universes. Mainstream science, which is evil, a conspiracy uh, between industry, science and big pharma. 
and can't be trusted at all and won't be listened to. Or the parallel universe, which works on quite different rules, but one of it is it is very good at telling emotive stories. Me, and, me, 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 and, me. and what I learnt from that is if I got up and actually started telling emotive stories from my background in, in people and patients that had died of infectious diseases and, and wove it through like that, suddenly they would listen because they listened to stories. And then in the end I was saying I was really proud to have been involved in the development of vaccines that had saved thousands of lives. And at the end of things like that, there would just be a hush across the crowd. I like the uh, advert that came out earlier this year, uh, the anti-vaccination mob uh, have a new line of T-shirts and all the models had tattoos. <laughs> Something going wrong there. So, yeah, dealing with uh, pseudoscience. OK, a uh, bunch of words. If it bleeds, it leads. Keep that in mind, it'll come, it make sense at the end of the story. So I was there at the kids' his hospital as a junior doctor on shift at, Ro at Royal Alexandria Hospital when after 20 years of zero deaths from vaccination, we had a child die from... Uh, so zero deaths from whooping cough. We had a child die from whooping cough. And I was there, everybody was sad, everybody was crying. First death in 20 years. And the parents at some stage turned to me and said, but... How can this be so? Because on TV they were saying that vaccinations don't work and anyway, vaccinations are harmful and I had no answer. And as a result of that question from that mother, I stopped being a doctor in a kids' hospital, which is the best job I ever had, and then started slanting into the media. About two years later, I ran into that person who on one of the TV shows was, you know, 6.30, pretend to be news on TV, had said, you know, we were showing both sides of the story. And I said to this person in the green room, uh, I said, how come you were saying that vaccinations didn't work when the vast body of evidence is that vaccinations do work? And this person said to me, look, we were just showing both sides of the story, comma, and you and I both know, comma, I was working for commercial television, we're just selling dog food. The whole purpose of free-to-air TV is to keep you watching so you see the advertisement. It doesn't matter what we put on. And she said, we're just seeing both sides of the story. And I said, so does that mean that if I'm a chef and I happen to be serving in a restaurant, I've got diarrhoea, and I go to the toilet and I've got faeces on my hands, well, one side of the story is that I should wash my hands and the other side of the story, because it's the other side is equally valid, that I should not wash my hands and keep on serving food. Uh, and the person just walked out of the room at that stage. Yeah, if I it bleeds, at least you're up against a very hard model. They want to sell dog food, and if it bleeds, at least you give a donation to a school, doesn't show on TV. The school has a car accident, it shows on TV. And just okay. one more thing yeah. to add to that, too, and it gets back to the science education question and science communication. So I was educated as a scientist, and we were trained, don't be emotion, emotion gets in the way of rationality, blah, blah, blah. But of course, you can't communicate with people. You can't reach people if you don't put some heart and guts into it. And the, the, to me, the biggest irony of this, so we were taught that you know emotion is here, rationality is there, and if you want to be rational, you can't be emotional. And if you're a girl, you better act like a man because we know that emotional hysterical women can't be scientists, right? Well, the fact is, besides the obvious prejudice and sexism of that, it's not even true. The latest and most interesting research from neuroscience shows us that you cannot think rationally if the emotive parts of your brain are damaged. And that actually emotional reasoning is part of rationality. So if there's one thing I wish the scientific community would pay attention to from their own colleagues, it's that every chemist, physicist, geologist, biologist in the world 
should pay attention to some of this evidence from neuroscience, which helps us understand both how good decision-making occurs and how good communication occurs. Now, and just to round out a, uh, a, an answer to that question, Tanya, are scientists rubbish when it comes to telling stories? <laughs> oh, that's a tough one, Paul. I think scientists can tell very good stories, but often have an... It's not encouraged in the worlds they travel in. And that's why I'm really encouraged by some of the things we're starting to see now. Like, so, for example, in the world of universities, one of the most fun things every year is when the, the PhD students, the people who are just training to learn how to do research in their chosen field, enter a competition called the three-minute thesis. And they have to try in language that their next-door neighbour or grandma would understand to explain their research in three minutes. And it's absolutely gripping. You sit on the edge of your seat. So you can't tell me that our next generation of scientists don't know how to communicate but sometimes it's a tough road and getting gigs in the science world and building a career is really tough and so it often tends to um, mean you get a few knocks and you realize that if you're outspoken you know you'll get criticism and you might not get your next grant and people shrink in and I think that's what we've got to stop. Ladies and gentlemen, we've been here an hour. I think we could do another hour easily, but I would get into so much trouble it wouldn't be worth it. Uh, just a couple of quick plugs before we go anywhere. Uh, Naomi will be doing a book signing after this, uh, so if you wish to get your copy of her book, uh, Merchant of Doubt, um, signed, Naomi will be around. Dr Carl, you're doing a Kids I've, Zone I've appearance. Read, I've read Naomi's book, Merchants of Doubt, and it points the analogies between climate change and tobacco. Read the book, be there or be square. And I'm yep. doing something in Kids Zones, Q&A and book signing afterward. Yep. But definitely get her book. And, and meanwhile, Tanya and I are going to just go back to the bar. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you very much. And a big round of applause for Naomi, Tanya and Carl.